Ah, you caught me with my mic off. Thought I had everything. How you doing? My name is Ben. Merry Christmas to you. Hey, you all know what it means to re-gift, right? Have you ever been given a, a gift and uh, you open it up and what comes out of your mouth is, thank you, but what's in your head is, what in the world were you thinking? Like, why would you think I wanted something like this? And so maybe you shuffle around in the box and you're looking and there's no receipt, there's no tags, there's no way to take this thing back. And if you're like me, maybe the, the thoughts start to come in of like, why wouldn't you just give me the 20 bucks, right? You spent good money on this piece of garbage. But then all of a sudden you remember You've got that get-together next week, right? You've got the office party or the mom's group or maybe something at school, and you're supposed to bring a gift. And, hey, this is a nice gift, right? Like, anybody would want a gift like this. I'll just give this, right? We go from one extreme to the other just like that. How many of you would be willing to admit you have re-gifted something in your life? Sure, a lot of us have done it. Now, listen, what if I told you that re-gifting was actually a command of Jesus? Would you believe me? Well, check it out. Look for yourself. Matthew 10, verse 8. Freely you have received. Now freely give, right? And of course, we know that Jesus wasn't talking about turtlenecks and chia pets, was he? But he had something much more important in mind. He was talking to his disciples about giving away all of the good gifts that he had given to them. He wanted them to go out and to do unto others as he had done to them. And so that's a huge part of what it means to live the Christian life. It's re-gifting all of the good things that God has given to us. And so as a church, we are on a mission this Christmas season and beyond to put this into practice and to treat these days leading up to, to Christmas as if those words were written straight to us. Freely you have received, now freely give. And the goal of this series is really to identify what some of those good gifts are and then to give you some practical ways to re-gift uh, those gifts in our community, in your homes, at your workplace, at school, and that you would go out and do that. Anywhere we encounter people, we're making it our goal to re-gift what we have freely received from God. And so today, like Jen said, I want to talk about the gift of joy. And we're going to study Luke chapter 2. If you brought a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 2. But what does, what does it mean to re-gift joy? Joy is a popular theme at Christmas time, isn't it? We see that word everywhere. It's on Christmas decorations and Christmas cards. And you come to church and we sing songs about joy. It's all over the place. But what is joy exactly? Well, I found a, a definition that I felt like was better than all the others. I want to share it with you this morning. It's this, joy is an emotion that's acquired by the anticipation, acquisition, or even the expectation of something great or wonderful. Don't you think that's a, that's a good definition of joy? And I want you to keep that in mind as I share with you something that happened to me last weekend right here at Genesis Church. And as soon as it happened, I thought, oh, I've got to tell everybody about this. This is going to be perfect for my message. And so awkwardly enough, it happened in the men's room. And uh, as I went into the men's room last Sunday, I was greeted by two people. Luke Mumaw, who is Paul's younger son, who serves faithfully in our Gen Kids ministry, and uh, a young man who was there who he was assisting in the restroom. And as I walked in, this little guy, man, he couldn't have been four or five years old. I wish I knew who he was. I recognized him, but I'm not sure whose kid he was. I would definitely call you out if I knew. But, uh, but I walked in, and, 
And just with all the joy you can possibly imagine, he just declared with a big smile on his face, I just went potty! <laughs> and uh, I was caught off guard, and I started to laugh, and so I tried to match his joy and his enthusiasm, and I said, way to go, buddy! And he goes, yeah, and I'm going to wash my hands! <laughs> And uh, I thought, well, that's a pretty good next step. And so I was like, do it. That's a good deal, man. And he just went, he just talked to me the whole time I was in the bathroom. I love church. And my, my teacher's great. And I love being here. And I'm talking to a stranger in the bathroom. And like just on and on and on and just coming out of him, this just joyful kid. And it got me thinking, you know. Well, first of all, I laughed about that all week long, <laughs> like just thinking back to his joy. But it really did get me thinking about joy and the fact that joy is one of those things. When you have it, like it just comes out of you. It's just a natural thing for if joy's in here, it's going to come out in your life. Think about that for a minute. Like all of us have, have been around some people, right, who didn't have joy. Or at least, you know, on the outside, it seemed like, you know, they were always grumpy, maybe irritable, maybe even bitter or a little bit angry. And we never think of, of those people like, well, deep down on the inside, they're full of joy, right? We don't think that because it's not true. Because if there's joy on the inside, it's going to come to the outside. If a person is, is marked by joy, it's going to flow out of them. And here's the, here's the crazy thing. Like, it even comes out of people at the strangest times. Like, even at funerals. Have you noticed that? People who have, like, this deep joy, even at something like a funeral, that's going to come out. My wife, Beth Ann, and I uh, had more than our fair share of funerals this year. And, uh, Beth lost her grandfather this fall. Beth's grandpa's name was Bob Shawbeck. And all of the grandkids just called him Papa Bob. And Papa Bob was a great guy, always had a smile on his face, usually was playing a prank on somebody, loved his family, just a, a wonderful man, and very active and great health. He was 87 years old, and uh, still they had a fifth-wheel travel trailer. And they, uh, he and his wife had gone camping, and he just missed a step coming out of the travel trailer and, and went down, and it caused a brain bleed that ultimately uh, took Papa Bob's life. And so the suddenness of his death took us all by surprise. And so we found ourselves in Streeter, Illinois this past August for his funeral. And then just a couple of months later, my Grandpa Jones got sick. And I've shared with you about my Grandpa Jones before. He was 97 years old. He's a rock star in Michigan City. There's a street named after him, and they have a day. They call it Warren Jones Day. Like, he is, everybody knows my grandpa in Michigan City. But he had, uh, like I say, he's 97 years old, kind of living on borrowed time. And after a couple of weeks of trips to the ER and fluid kind of building up around his heart, he just finally left this life and uh, went to, to be with the Lord. He passed away, and so we headed to Michigan City for a second funeral. But here's what's interesting about both of those situations. At both Papa Bob's funeral and at Grandpa Jones' funeral, there, there were tears. You would expect that. There was sadness. Uh, there was tears. There, were the, there was the feeling of loss, uh, the, the hurt, the, the wishing that that person was back with you. But there was also something else. Because both Papa Bob and Grandpa Jones, they knew the hope of Jesus Christ. They had both walked with the Lord for a long, long time. And so while death ended their time with us here on earth, they had no victory over their souls. None at all. And so while the sadness and the heartache were real, so was the joy. 
knowing that their struggle here on this earth was done. Joy, knowing they were now standing face to face with the God they loved. Joy, knowing this wasn't the end for them. It was only the beginning. See, joy isn't based on whether things are going well or not here on planet earth. No, joy can be found even in the pain because real lasting joy comes from something greater than what this earth could ever offer us. And so that's what I want to talk about today is joy. Where does it come from and how do we re-gift it? And to do that, I'd like for us to read together through the Christmas story found in Luke chapter 2. This will be a familiar passage to many of you. We're going to stop to take some notes along the way, but let's read it together starting in verse 1. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Let's pause right there. Caesar Augustus was the head of the entire Roman Empire, and his decrees were absolute law, okay? And he decreed that a census should be taken. He wanted a head count of everyone in the entire Roman world. That is all of the territory that Rome had conquered, and he was counting people and property, not just because he wanted to know how much was there, but he wanted to, he wanted to collect taxes. And so he was sending out these folks to, to count people, to count property, because he wanted to generate some revenue off of this census. And this decree, it wasn't optional, okay? It didn't matter who you were, how old you were, what your life situation was. You had to respond to this decree for the census to be taken, and you had to participate by going to your hometown to be counted. And we might think, well, what's the big deal with that, right? Like, we all have to pay taxes. It's still something we do today. You've got to go to your hometown. Big deal. You see mom and dad. It's Christmas. That's what you do, right? Well, a historian named Lactantius in about 300 AD gave us a, a good picture of what a Roman census really entailed. I want to share with you a quote from some of his writings. He says this, the greatest public calamity and general sorrow was the census imposed on the provinces and cities. The census takers appeared everywhere and produced tumult everywhere they went. The fields were measured clod by clod, every grapevine and fruit tree counted, every head of livestock of every kind was listed, the exact number of people noted, and in the autonomous cities, the urban and the rural population were herded together until the marketplaces were filled with the collected families. All came with their whole band of children and slaves, and everywhere was heard the screaming of those who were being interrogated with torture and beatings. Sons were forced to testify against their fathers, the trustiest slaves driven to bear witness against their masters, and wives against their husbands. And when all other means had been exhausted, the victims were tortured until they gave evidence against themselves, and when pain had at last conquered, taxable property that did not exist was registered." Okay, do you see what was happening here? This was all geared towards Caesar Augustus drawing taxes off of things that didn't even exist, people who didn't exist, property that didn't exist. But they would get people to admit to this through beatings and through torture. That's what the census meant that we read about in Luke chapter 2. It was cruel, it was corrupt, it was an unfair process, all focused on benefiting the Roman Empire. And this is just a small glimpse of the world that Jesus Christ would be born into. Now in verse 4 we read this. 
So Joseph, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now the text tells us that they went up, and we've talked about this before, that in the New Testament, when you read that they went up, they weren't traveling north. That is telling us about elevation. And as we look at a map of Israel, we see that Nazareth is in the north and Bethlehem is in the south. But as they went from north to south, they were traveling up in elevation. It was a nearly 100-mile journey uphill. And it, it normally would have taken somewhere between five and ten days to make that trek on foot. But we have to remember, Joseph is traveling with a, a pregnant Mary. And so that certainly figured into the, the difficult nature of their journey. But they made it nonetheless. Mary and Joseph come into Bethlehem. And then verse 6 tells us that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now pause right there. Because what is so often portrayed when we watch uh, nativity movies or maybe you've seen a Christmas play even this year and you've got a couple of kids dressed in bathrobes, right? And it's Mary and Joseph and they're coming into Bethlehem and it's nighttime and all the doors are locked, the windows are shuttered and they're just in a frantic search for some place to stay. They're banging on doors. Can we stay here? No, we're full. They go to the inn. No, the inn is full and Mary's about to pop and what's going to happen, Right? But notice that that is nowhere in the text. Like that is all conjecture. All the text tells us is that while they were there, the time came. Were they there for 10 minutes? Were they there for two weeks? Were they there for a month? We don't know. All we know is that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. In verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so here they are, Mary and Joseph, proud new parents. They have a brand new baby boy and they laid him in a manger and God is now with us. God had taken on flesh, stepped out of heaven, come into our world. Jesus Christ, the Savior, had come, and he came in the most humble way possible. I mean, try to wrap your mind around the idea that the king of the universe, the one who created it all, has now become part of the creation itself. And it makes me think of that passage that I've spoken so many times that that Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. But what? He made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. Incredible. As he lays there in the manger, helpless as a little baby. And Luke tells us in verse 8, it says, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And you know, you and I don't have a great reference for, for shepherds or, or who they were or what they did, but shepherds were a normal part of the culture in Jesus' day. They were a, a, a normal fixture. And so uh, for us, we, we don't really have a, a good sense of what that entailed, but I'm telling you, these guys were tough, okay? They were rugged. They were vigilant. They had to be because they were out there with their flocks living in the, 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 the fields and these sheep, like there was all kinds of threats to the sheep that they were shepherding. 
wild beasts coming in and, and trying to, to tear off a, a sheep to have a quick and easy meal. And the shepherd had to be ready to respond, to fight off you know, that beast. They couldn't be men of fear. They had to, to be men of courage who were willing to step in and to fight even with bare hands if it was necessary. So keep that in mind as you watch what happens next in verse 9, these, these fearless men. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So here are these guys that, you know, fight off beasts with their bare hands, and they are scared to death. But I got to thinking about this passage and about how the, the angel appears and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the reality is one of our kids who will remain unnamed uh, had a really bad habit for a while that if they needed mom or dad in the middle of the night, instead of maybe tiptoeing into our room or even just using a little flashlight or something, they opted to turn all 240 volts of light hanging right above our bed on in the dead of night. And if, if you have ever experienced something like that, you know what the second coming of Christ is going to be like, right? <laughs> it is absolutely frightening. That's kind of what I picture for these shepherds out in, the, out in the fields. It's just starry darkness, peacefulness, one minute, and then all of a sudden, here's this angelic being. The lights have been thrown on, and the glory of the Lord shone around these guys. So then in verse 10, the, the angel says this. He says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, we've talked about this before. The angel declared good news of great joy. And, and we've talked about the, the fact that when we read the Bible today, our Bible typically has two parts to it. We've got the, the Old Testament here on my left. We've got the New Testament here on my right. And when we read, we think nothing of, of going back and forth between the two, or even if you're maybe on a, a Bible reading plan, starting at one end and, and ending at the other, and we don't think anything of the middle. But there's a page in my Bible uh, right here between the two of them, just a really thin page. And what this page right here represents in my Bible and yours is 400 years. Did you know that? 400 years between the final words of the Old Testament and the, the beginning words of the New. It's what a lot of scholars refer to as the intertestamental period. A lot of people also call it the time when God was silent because there were no new prophets sent forth. There were no new prophecies spoken in this 400-year period. And this 400 years was a really difficult time for the nation and the people of Israel. In that 400-year period, the, the nation of Israel went from being conquered by the Persians to then being conquered again by the Greeks. And then finally in 63 BC, they came under Roman rule. And so for over 400 years, Israel had existed as a conquered people group. They had endured deportation. They had experienced the defiling and the destruction of their temple and of their holy city. And even as the events of Luke 2 were unfolding, the, the Jews were still under that heavy thumb of the Roman Empire. And so throughout all of this, don't you think they must have been wondering, like, where is God? Where is this promised Messiah that we read about in the Old Testament? When is this going to happen? Is it even true? At what point, if that was you, at what point would you decide, like, this is never going to happen? Like, I'm just, this is, this is ridiculous. 400 years had passed. At what point would you throw in the towel? 
But now in Luke chapter 2, God has broken his 400 years of silence. And now all of a sudden, here is this angel speaking to these shepherds about good news of, of great joy. God is once again speaking to his people through this angel after all of those years of silence and his plan for the salvation of the world has begun to unfold. You know, it's so important to note what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, that when the set time had fully come, don't rush past that, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. You see, when Paul says that, that the time had fully come, it points to the fact that God wasn't early and he wasn't late. He was right on time. He was exactly in the moment when he intended for this to happen. And in verse 12, the angel said to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The Savior had come. The Messiah had finally come. And his peace would make all the difference in a world that was searching for joy. This was the good news and the cause of great joy. And I want to suggest to you today that 2,000 years later, absolutely nothing has changed. If you're taking notes this morning, write this down. Lasting joy is still only found in Jesus. Lasting joy is only found in Jesus because here's the deal. Jesus wasn't only born, but he grew up. And Hebrews tells us that though he was tempted in every way, he lived a perfect, sinless life. And his life, within his life, he fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Prophecies like Micah 5.2 that foretold that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And Isaiah 7.4 that told of the Messiah being born of a virgin. And Isaiah 53 that tells of a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And that the punishment that we deserved would be put upon him and that by his wounds we would be healed. Those words were spoken of Jesus Christ 600 years before he came on the scene. But that's exactly what happened for you and me through the death of Jesus on the cross. His sinless life made him the perfect, spotless sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And it's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And while the shepherds were certainly excited that the 400 years of silence had finally been broken and that the Savior had finally been born, we have the knowledge that not only was he born, not only did he live, and not only did he die, but he defeated death and he walked out of that grave. And in Matthew 24, he made the promise that he is coming again for all who have trusted in him. And for those who have, who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, that day when he comes again is going to be unimaginable joy. We should long for it as followers of Jesus because John tells us in Revelation 21 that on that day there will be no more mourning, no more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. But here's the best part. 
We will be with him forever, forever. Don't you long for that? Don't you desire for Christ to come again? Well, the reality is I've had enough conversations with enough Christian people to know that that's not always the case. I've had enough interactions and just talking about the reality of, you know, Jesus could come today and the response has been, I hope not. And the heart behind it, I think the heart is actually right because what often is expressed to me in those moments is is the, the thought that, well, if Christ came today, like my husband or my wife isn't saved and so, you know, what about them or my kids don't know Jesus and so if he came back today or my neighbors or my coworkers or whoever it is, like if Jesus Christ came back today, the end would not be good for them. So no, I'm not excited about the thought of Jesus coming back. And again, the heart behind that is right. I want you to hear me clearly. A heart that breaks for lost people is a heart that is very close to the heart of God. A heart that breaks for, for people who have an eternity of separation from God ahead of them it is a heart that is very close to the heart of Jesus Christ, but it is not a heart that, that should cause us to draw away from, from putting our hope and our joy in the day when Christ will be re- returning. Instead, it should motivate us to work harder at making disciples, at being intentional at every opportunity that's put in front of us to re-gift the joy that's inside of us. It should cause us to pray more diligently, to live missionally, to to use every opportunity relationally, to, to, to use them intentionally to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are lost. But no, folks, there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests that any of the, the early church fathers, the, the disciples, the, the apostles, that any of them had this thought of, well, I just hope Jesus doesn't come today. No, it was eager expectation. It was come, Lord Jesus. And in the midst of that, until you do, we're going to be faithful. We're going to work hard. We're going to bear much fruit. But come, Lord Jesus, because we're ready when you are. It should cause us to have great joy. Can I tell you, as we talk about, you know, just taking every opportunity to re-gift that joy with people. Once we have it, we should be giving it away. Can I give you just one really simple way to do that? This is on your notes page if you want to write it down. We can re-gift joy by sharing our story. Re-gift joy by sharing your stories. The shepherds in Luke chapter 2 who saw that angel and they, they went and they did what the angel told them and they found Jesus laying there in the manger just as the angel said he would be. They had a story to tell for the rest of their lives, right? I just, I imagine that, that for the rest of their lives, that's what marked them. They, they were always those shepherds that saw the angel that started this whole thing. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we actually read, it says, uh, when the shepherds had seen Jesus, that's who it's referring to, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. What did they do? They spread the word. They went out from there and they told everybody they could possibly tell. They re-gifted joy by telling others about what had happened to them. And I think it's a good reminder for us Are you and I doing the same thing? Like if somebody came up to you today with that question, why why do you have so much joy? How can you be so joyful in a moment like this? If someone were to ask you that question, would you be ready to give them the reason for that joy? 
Listen, the reality is a lot of us aren't ready. A lot of us, we stumble over our words in a moment like that, but there's a really simple tool that we can use to be ready for a moment like that. And it's, it's something that we've called here before my way back story. In fact, several of you uh, went online to our website and you uploaded yourself sharing your way back story. You can go on our Vimeo page and see several of those if you don't know what I'm talking about. But your way back story is just a short version of your entire story is essentially it's it's a lot of the details may be pulled out but it's three essential pieces your way back story is first of all life before christ can we put that up yeah life before christ what was life like for you before you met christ and then secondly how did you receive christ who told you about jesus how did you come to receive him were you at a church service were you on a beach were you were you reading the word what happened that you received christ and then finally what has life been like with Christ? What is different about you now? This is your way back story. And then, like I say, it's maybe two minutes long. It's not every single detail. It's not all of the, the ins and outs and everything. But that when someone would ask you that question, why are you filled with so much joy? That you would say, you know what my life was like before Christ? And then you tell them. And you say, but you know what? Then something happened. And you tell them. And then you say, and now, you know, things are so different. And you tell them how it's different, how his Christ changed you. And it's just taking that opportunity to use this simple tool to re-gift joy by sharing your story. And I just wonder this morning, if you've never taken the time to, to think through your way back story, would you do that? Maybe even today, sit down and, and think through just maybe a line for each of those things. And then would you be willing to make it your goal and even your prayer every morning to say, God, give me the opportunity to share my story today, to share the joy that you've put inside of me with somebody else by telling them what you've done for me. And then watch for opportunities throughout your day to share your story and re-gift joy. And while you're at it, you know, we've been talking about this for several weeks now, four days until our first Christmas series, you guys, that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it always sneaks up on us. But in four days, we're going to be right back in here on Thursday night celebrating Christmas. And we've got these invite cards at both of our exits, and we've printed them for you. They are there for you to take. Take as many of them as you want. And why not have a couple of them in your wallet or in your purse or in your pocket that when the opportunity is in front of you and you've prayed for that opportunity and God opens the door that you're ready not only to tell your story, but to say, hey, why don't you come and celebrate Christmas with me? And you hand them that card and, and uh, you sit with them at Christmas service and you celebrate Christmas together. Just again, just a really simple way to re-gift joy this holiday season. We know statistically that this time of year, people are more open to an invite to come and be a part of a church service than they are almost any other time of year. Just statistically speaking, that's true. We still live in the Midwest. People still go to church at Christmas and Easter, okay? And so it's like low-hanging fruit, you guys. Let's take advantage of it and re-gift joy this year because we don't know when Christ is going to come. We don't. Nobody knows that. And if they tell you they know that, don't listen to them because they don't. The only person who knows that is the Father in heaven. But we do know that he's coming. And we do know that he does not desire for anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we know that he has invited those of us who are Christ followers into that process, 
It's what Paul refers to as the ministry of reconciliation. Or we say it this way around Genesis Church. It's helping people find their way back to God. That's our mission. That's what we want to be about here at Genesis Church. And while we don't know when it will happen, we believe it could be soon, even today. And so my question to you this morning, if maybe you are far from God, you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, my question to you is, why not? Like if Christ came today, why, why not take that step? Have you put your trust in him? Has he paid the, the penalty for, he has paid the penalty for all of your sins, past, present, and future. He has offered you a life of joy and hope and peace. And listen, it can be yours today by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Everything can be different for you this Christmas. Your life can have new meaning, new purpose, and you can be filled with lasting joy. If you've never taken a step like that to invite Christ into your heart, I'd love to talk to you more after the service, and I'd love to talk to you about what a relationship like that looks like. And if you've already surrendered your life to Christ, my question to you is this. Are you eagerly expecting Christ's soon return? Like on a daily basis, are you just waking up and thinking, it could be today, this could be it? And are you living each day believing that, that if his return could happen today, like, I need to do something about that. I need to get busy at the work of making disciples. I need to get busy at sharing the joy that is inside of me with everyone I come in contact with. Let's not lose sight of the fact that Christ could come any day at any moment. And let's live on mission this Christmas and every day until his return. Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ into this world, born of a virgin, that he lived a, a sinless life, that he died a sacrificial death, that he rose from the grave, Father, giving us hope that there is more beyond death, and that he promised that he is coming again for those who have received him and received the free gift of his salvation. Father, if there are those in the room today who have not yet received that free gift, I pray that you would draw their hearts, you would give them boldness to stand against what this world tells us is, is, is nonsense, Father. Your word tells us that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, and I pray that some in the room today would experience that power in a new and real way. And Father, for those of us who maybe have been following after you for a long time, I think one of the tricks of the enemy, one of the things that he loves to do is just to simply distract us, make us think this is still way off in the future. This is never going to happen. And Father, we just confess that sometimes we believe it. But we recenter today on your word. We recenter on the fact that Christ could come at any moment. No one knows the day or the time or the hour except for you. But we want to be ready and we want you to find us faithful and fruitful when you come. And so to that end, Father, would you show us who it is that you have maybe put in our path even today that we could re-gift joy to and find us ready to give that hope that is inside of us and to share that hope with everyone we come in contact with. Father, it's in Christ's name that we pray today. Amen.